On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Welcome to the Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University. My guest today is Jonathan Gruber, Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. Welcome to the Closer Look podcast, Professor Gruber. Good to be here, Seth. Thanks again for joining us. We're really happy to have you and really happy to talk about this important paper that recently came out in JPAM entitled The Affordable Care Act's Effects on Patients, Providers, and the Economy, What We've Learned So Far, co-authored with Benjamin Summers at Harvard University. So the title... The abstract says that it's been 10 years since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA or Obamacare, and wow, time really flies. So what about now makes this a good time to write this review, and uh, what did you find quickly when you revisited the past 10 years? Well, I think it's a good time, you know, 10 years is always a natural point to reevaluate something, but it's also a good time because there continues to be constant criticism of the ACA, often in evidence vacuum. And because the presidential debate is very focused on where to go. Currently on the Democratic side, the argument is all whether to enhance the ACA or replace it with single payer. Obviously, once we get to the general election, there'll be much more discussion on just getting rid of the ACA. President Trump seems to continue to feel it should go away. So I think it's an important time to understand what the evidence says about the effects the ACA has had. Yeah, definitely. So given it's been 10 years, can you give us a quick overview of the ACA's history in terms of when it was passed, when it went into effect, and the various challenges and repeals that have happened since its passage? Yeah, so the real history is the sort of origin of it is the Massachusetts healthcare reform, or what's called Romneycare, a program putting in place in Massachusetts in 2006, and it became a model for what President Obama proposed as soon as he was elected in early 2009. And there was a vigorous debate, and it finally passed in spring of 2010. The law passed, but really wasn't fully implemented for about four years, because it was complicated and a lot of things had to get set up. So that led to a lot of debate during that time period, so that by the time the law came into place, there was already a lot of controversy about it. That controversy had, I think, a lot of negative political consequences for the Democrats, and, you know, was partially responsible for the election of a Republican Congress and Republican president who have scaled back on the law, but at the same time been unsuccessful in repealing it. So we've ended up in this uneasy truce with a weakened ACA, but an ACA where there doesn't seem to be public appetite for repeal. Okay. And weakened in particular dimensions or particular ways? Yes, weakened in a number of ways. One is, you know, a central element of the Affordable Care Act was the individual mandate, the requirement for individuals to buy health insurance or they face a penalty. That penalty was zeroed out as part of the Trump tax bill last year. The Secondly, a lot of the coverage under the Affordable Care Act was supposed to come through these exchanges, these private insurance markets, but insurers were a little bit wary of participating in these markets, and what insurers don't like is uncertainty. And the Trump administration and Republicans' actions to sort of go back and forth on rules on this program has led insurers to be less willing to participate in these programs and to charge higher premiums when they do. So as a result, what's sort of ironic is we've kind of ended up with a program that's much more democratic than bipartisan. 
You know, the Affordable Care Act was a very bipartisan piece of legislation. Even though it passed on a partisan basis, it was designed, after all, it was based on a Republican governor's law here in Massachusetts and was designed by a bipartisan group in the Senate Finance Committee. And the sort of bipartisan nature was to sort of have subsidized coverage for low-income people and sort of non-subsidized coverage for medium-income people. And in some sense, what the actions of since 2017 have done is weakened the not-subsidized part. So it's really become a law that's primarily serving just the low-income population. And let me ask, before we dive into some of the specific results of the various studies that have been done, what would you say were the big overarching goals of the ACA initially? And I think that's important to think about when we think about the ACA's success in meeting those goals. I think the goals of the ACA were, I would say, several fold. I would say the most important goal in terms of social justice was to ensure that insurers could no longer discriminate against the sick in delivering insurance. America was alone among developed countries in having a system where insurers could actually charge sick people more for health insurance or deny them insurance altogether, which sort of goes against the principles of insurance. And that's the pre-existing conditions. Pre-existing conditions, right. but it's actually, it goes by that name, but that's shorthand for a host of things. Actually, it's not the most important part. Pre-existing conditions is the notion that if you were sick, if you had something wrong with you, they wouldn't cover that. But much worse was they could just deny you coverage altogether or charge you a hundred times more what someone else paid. So it's not just about pre-existing conditions. It's about the fact that it was not real insurance. Real insurance is something where you pay whether healthy or sick and get covered if you're sick. This was insurance which you couldn't get if you were sick. So fixing that, and we ended that with the ACA, is probably the most important, I think, accomplishment. The second was to make health insurance more affordable through a series of expansions of Medicaid and tax subsidies for private insurance. And the third was to put in place a series of initiatives to try to slow healthcare cost growth, which was introducing things like affordable, accountable care organizations and other sorts of experimentation in the healthcare system. At the outset, what would you say are some of the most important results and important pieces of research that have come out of the past 10 years of really a whole bunch of people studying a whole bunch of aspects of the ACA? I think, you know, if I had to highlight the key ones, I think one is there's just an unambiguous conclusion that the Affordable Care Act massively increased health insurance coverage, probably about 20 million people, that most of that effect came through Medicaid rather than through private exchanges. And interestingly, a lot of the effect actually came through people who are already eligible for Medicaid who now signed up, perhaps because they suddenly realized that Medicaid was available for them. So basically, healthcare utilization went up, but health improved. And there's significant evidence that health improved along a variety of dimensions, including lower mortality, you know, fewer people dying as a result of these expansions, so as a result of these policies. So I think that that's really been very exciting. So I think we saw increasing utilization and improvement in health. We didn't really see any negative effects on access to care. Basically, access to care seemed to go up, and that was quite good. Some people were worried there'd be sort of a over-demand, if you will, relative to supply, and that just doesn't seem to have been the case. Now, do you think that happened because did more suppliers of health care meet that increased demand, or was that excess supply just you know waiting in the wings? I think there was plenty of supply, and I think... At the end of the day, relative to the whole size of the health economy, that wasn't that big an increase in demand. That was even 20 million people. You know, we already had on the order of probably 250 million insured people already in America, 240 million. So 
20 million more was not enough to really sort of shock the system in a way that I think some people were concerned about. Yeah, that's really interesting. So this coverage increase, we have 20 million newly insured people. Can we say much about who those 20 million people were? And I know we talked about the woodwork effect of people who were actually already eligible, but were not taking Medicaid, came out of the woodwork, so to speak, to take coverage under the ACA. Related to who they are, do you have any idea of like why the woodwork effect is happening? You know, it's a great question. I think that basically what we think is that eligibility for public health insurance is confusing. A lot of people don't recognize that they're eligible. They don't understand what their entitlement is. And when suddenly this law passes that says, wow, everyone gets health insurance, you suddenly pay attention and say, wow, I was already eligible. Or maybe you hear about it and call up thinking you're newly eligible and it turns out you're already eligible. So I think that's a lot of what's happening. Okay. And one last point about this increase in coverage before we move on. I know that some of the literature and some of the policy was concerned about racial and socioeconomic gaps in coverage as well as in health outcomes. Do we have any evidence that racial or demographic or socioeconomic gaps in coverage closed as a result of the ACA? Yeah, I don't know the number in front of me, but certainly there was a lot of closings of coverage gaps because, I mean, essentially, uninsurance rates were so much higher among minority groups that naturally, if you're going to increase uninsurance in general, it's going to definitely close gaps. And then in particular, we had the fact that it was most of the gains have been through Medicaid, which disproportionately affects minorities. Okay. And now, was closing those gaps an official goal of the ACA, or was this more of an uh, unintended consequence, would you say? I wouldn't say it was unintended, but I wouldn't, it wasn't listed as an official goal. It was sort of an understood consequence. An understood problem with our system was the gaps. Basically, it's really interesting. People talk about, you know, you hear the U.S. as a bad healthcare system in terms of outcomes. But the truth is, for white, well-off people, the system works quite well. You know, a white baby born today has the same infant mortality rate as one born in Scandinavia, but a black baby born today has the same infant mortality rate as one born in Barbados. And basically, we just know that a lot of those disparities come from unequal access to insurance and coverage. And so we sort of knew disparities would naturally diminish if you put in a system like this. Yeah, and that's definitely an important success of the ACA then, not just the increase in coverage, but also the closing of these gaps. Now, at the outset, you mentioned several different goals and several different mandates related to the ACA. And really, as a non-health expert looking at all this, it seems to me that the ACA, in a sense, was a bundle of a whole bunch of policies put together. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, but it wasn't like an omnibus bill where they're put together just because it's a convenient vehicle. I mean, they're put together sort of in a mindful way to try to balance winners and losers because it was a complicated bill to try to sort of make sure to build that both was good for the healthcare system, but could also pass. Yeah, yeah, I didn't mean to say it was uh, haphazard, but there's definitely different pieces of the ACA. And it seems like that can complicate the analysis, but it also in some ways helps the analysis. Is that right? Well, it can complicate the analysis if you are trying to say which piece of the ACA did this. It makes it hard. It makes it easier program to study because since it was broad, there were big effects. But certainly, but I think really, if you think about now getting to sort of the statistics of analyzing the ACA, really, in some sense, what turned out a sort of very unfortunate decision by the Supreme Court turned out to be a boom to research, which is that the original design of the ACA was that every state would expand its Medicaid program to those below 133% of the poverty line. 
The Supreme Court made that voluntary, which meant suddenly you had a bunch of states doing it, a bunch of states not doing it, which was, like I said, was bad for residents of those states who are now remain uninsured, but good for researchers who now could compare what happened in the states that expanded Medicaid to those that don't. So while the ACA was a bundle of policies, there's been a lot of particular focus on these Medicaid expansions because they sort of have a natural framework for studying them. Right. And speaking of that court decision and the fact that some states did different things than other states, I think it's useful for our listeners to make clear that this was not any sort of true randomized control trial, but various aspects of the policy and how it was implemented created what economists would call a natural experiment that facilitates identifying the impact of the ACA and of different aspects of the ACA. Could you say a little bit about what those natural experiments were and how the various researchers have leveraged those to isolate interesting estimates? Yeah, it's a great way to put it. There's a number of natural experiments arising from, for example, you know, there's been papers that have looked at the Medicaid expansions, you know, basically taking the fact that some states expanded Medicaid and other states didn't, and some states did at different times, so provide sort of a natural set of comparisons. There's other natural experiments arising from the fact that, for example, there's different you know, kinks in the schedule where it's certain at 300% of poverty or 400% of poverty, something can change radically, either the premiums you have to pay or the benefits you get. So that's another kind of natural experiment people have leveraged. So I think there's been a lot of sort of focus on sort of the way the law is structured leading to sort of, I think, very convincing and interesting empirical analysis. Yeah. And another of those has to do with the 26-year-old dependent coverage provision. Yes. States had their own laws, but on average nationally, Kids were only covered through age 18 or through age 23 if they were students. This extended to age 26. And a lot of the early studies said, okay, what happened to that age group relative to kids who say were slightly older and didn't benefit from this provision? So a lot of the studies we review in our review are based on that. Okay. And what do we find for those kids uh, in their mid to early 20s that benefited by gaining coverage as a result? We find a lot of things. So we find that they gained a lot of coverage. We find that they used more care and we find that they're healthier. Okay. Then this is a really important piece of evidence, I think, because it's, you know, a well-identified effect, it seems like. And it seems like we can really learn something more generally about the population. Yeah, no, I think the age 26 sort of quasi-experiment, if you will, was, I think, very useful for learning a lot about the effects of the program. And shifting gears to another mandate, the individual mandate, I think seems like one of the more controversial components of the policy. Why do you think it was so controversial? Should it have been? And lastly, if you want to take a minute to say a little bit about the economics of why the individual mandate was there in the first place, what the adverse selection problem it was trying to Yeah, solve. why don't we start with the economics, because sort of to understand why it was there, and this was sort of pioneered as part of Romneycare in Massachusetts. And the idea was, look, As I said, the fundamental flaw in U.S. insurance markets was that insurers could discriminate against the sick. So this was known as a problem for a long time. And so the answer is, why don't you just outlaw that? Well, the problem is if you didn't let insurers discriminate against the sick, then you were essentially saying to insurers, well, you have to charge the same price to everyone, but people can wait till they're sick to buy insurance. So insurers said, no way. If you do that, I'll lose money. And that wasn't just an idle conjecture. Seven states in the 1990s, including Massachusetts, tried to remove insurance discrimination. And what they found was it destroyed their insurance markets because insurers left. They said in a market where I have to charge everyone the same price, but people get to pick and choose when they want to buy health insurance is not a profitable market for me. So they left. So the individual mandate was the idea of striking a deal of saying, look, if insurers will charge fair prices, we should make sure everyone buys insurance. And that's sort of the economics of it. That's why it kind of makes sense. And it worked very well in Massachusetts. But I think 
to make it work, you need people to respect it and accept it politically. And I think, you know, if you just say it on its own, you know, we're going to require you to buy health insurance, it sounds kind of aggressive. If you explain it as I did in the context of this is, you know, the spinach you have to eat that gets you the dessert of fair coverage, then people understand it better. So, for example, one of my favorite survey stories is that a survey early on the ACA and they asked, do you support the individual mandate? And one third of people said yes. Then they said, do you realize that if you already have health insurance, the individual mandate doesn't affect you? And now do you support it? And then two thirds of the people said yes. So it just was sort of misunderstood. It was confusing and misunderstood. And I think people, it was an easy thing to attack, like, oh, the government's trying to require health insurance without saying, well, first of all, for the vast majority of you, it won't matter. Second of all, there's a reason we have it, because if we don't, it's going to be hard to get fair insurance markets. So could you say a little bit about the economics of insurance in terms of what the goal of insurance is? I think that's a super important point that's missed, which is the goal of insurance is not necessarily to improve health. It's to improve people's well-being by balancing the risks and, and avoiding bankruptcy. That's really the goal. Yeah. And so in that sense, it seems like the policy could have been a success even if we didn't see any health impacts and we only saw coverage and cost management improvement. Is that right? If it improves health and we think it does, that's sort of a side benefit, if you will. And indeed, we emphasize that in the article that there's a number of studies which show how financial security was increased by the Affordable Care Act. That's one of the important things we find in the studies of the program. And that basically that's a lot of what the role of insurance is, is to increase financial security. And I think we lose sight of that. I think one of the most interesting studies in healthcare in recent years was called the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. And then I was a co-author on that study. And in that study, people were sort of randomly given health insurance. It was essentially an experiment for health insurance provision. And what we found was physical health didn't really change that much in the short run, but mental health improved massively. Depression fell like 30%. And it's because people are living with stress, uninsured people living with stress every day, knowing that just one bad gene or one bad traffic accident away from bankruptcy. And that's stressful and depressing and really bad for our country. And I think the main accomplishment that I feel like does not get enough credit of laws like the Affordable Care Act or Medicaid or Medicare is essentially providing the financial security so people can go to bed at night, not having to worry about that, not having to worry about getting sick tomorrow and then losing it all. So would it be fair to say that even if we didn't see any health benefits, if we did see coverage increases and cost management improvements, then the program was successful? Sure. So that's a great question. So there's sort of two ways of doing it. One way is to just look at people's out-of-pocket spending and show that people who are spending a lot of money out-of-pocket on medical care suddenly don't face that kind of exposure. And that is sort of the most direct way. But another cool thing that studies have started to do is to look at things like credit reports and showing that people who are covered by health insurance through things like the Affordable Care Act have lower medical debt, are less likely to have their debts go into collection. And so basically, there's direct evidence that people's you know, financial security is improving. It's really quite impressive. Remember, if we improve health, that's wonderful. But the main reason we care people are uninsured is because they're putting them at a risk that makes their life difficult. It stops them from making productive decisions. Oh, absolutely. And for our listeners, we'll put a link to the Oregon study up on the podcast website. But I do want to ask a little bit more about the cost management financial security piece. How is that measured in these studies? And can you give a sense of what the impact looks like on financial security? 
We talked for many years about the problem of job lock, the problem that individuals might be afraid to leave their job for a better job because they don't want to lose their health insurance. That's bad for the U.S. economy. The estimates are that pre-ACA, because of job lock, that among those who had health insurance, they were 25% less likely to leave their job because they were afraid of losing the health insurance. That's bad for the economy. Mobility is the hallmark of our productive U.S. labor market. And so if we want people to take productive risks, start new companies, move to the job that's best for them, we need to provide them financial security. And that's what universal health coverage does. Yeah. Well, that's definitely an important result. And uh, like you said, I think it probably doesn't get as much press as it should when focuses on the actual health outcomes. That said... Exactly. That basically when people are that, it basically, it has this multiplier effect, if you will, of removing that stress and allowing me to move forward out of my poverty trap and move forward on my life. Yeah, absolutely. And the mental health effect is big. And it reminds me of the concept of scarcity in Mullah Nathan and Shafir's book about how just chronic stress can impact decision making. Okay, so there's definitely big, important effects on mental health and financial security. But we do see this bonus of health benefits as well. And so let's dig into that a little bit. I guess there's two kinds of health effects. There's the long-term mortality effects, but then there's also sort of immediate quality of life type effects. Do you want to say a little bit about each uh, or about about each dimension that we learn? Yeah, absolutely. We talk about a lot of different benefits in terms of outcomes. So we talk about, as we said, reduced risk of financial distress. We see increased use of preventive care. So people are going to the doctor more getting preventive care. We see increased use of proper care for chronic illness, which is very important. That's a huge source of both bad health and inefficiency in our healthcare system. We see improved maternal health outcomes. And so that's a bunch of short-run stuff. And then we also see people dying less, which is sort of the bluntest but easiest to understand and most direct measure of improved health. On many, many dimensions, it does seem like health improved. Now, another critique of the ACA and of any health insurance policy is that there might be moral hazard or an unnecessary increase in medical spending. Is that something that any of these studies have been able to look at in terms of increased, maybe unnecessary medical spending? Yeah. So basically, I think that's a great question. And basically, you know, the way to look at that is to ask what happens to spending and what happens to health. So the way we measure moral hazard is we look at is there spending that doesn't seem associated with improvements in health. That's not the case here. There's certainly increase in spending. It's not saying there's not some moral hazard. You can't do dollar by dollar and say, this is a good dollar, this is a bad dollar. All you can do is say, overall, what was the improvement in health relative to the improvement in spending? And the answer is, in this context, spending went up, but health improved as well. So, for example, I mentioned this earlier. One important caveat to thinking about the affordable care is a lot of people thought emergency room visits would go down because people now have doctor's offices to go to and they wouldn't go to the ER. Well, emergency room visits went up. Why'd they go up? Because suddenly they used to cost money. Now they were free. And a bunch of people who weren't getting any care went to the ER. It doesn't mean that some people going to the ER didn't also go to the doctor. And it doesn't mean those ER visits were all wasteful. But I think the right answer is, you know, I think people who look to something, people who look to this to actually lower costs were thinking about it wrong. You got to think not about cost savings, but cost effectiveness. The Affordable Care Act was not a cost saving law. The Affordable Care Act was a cost effective law. It was cost effectively improving health and improving our financial security. The last group of outcomes that you review is labor supply, people's participation in the labor market, how much they work, whether they work. Why is that an important outcome to consider? And why would health insurance affect how much you work? It is an important outcome to consider because 
First of all, it was a large focus of the critiques of the Affordable Care Act was that basically people would have health insurance they now wouldn't work. And I think it was a confused discussion because basically the discussion, there's sort of two possible reasons why some of the Affordable Care Act could lower the amount of labor supplied in the economy. A demand side reason, a supply side reason. So the demand side reason would be employers would suddenly say, I'm not going to hire as many workers because now, whatever, because suddenly they're providing more health insurance or something. The supply side reason would be that basically workers would choose to work less because now they were working to get health insurance and now they don't have to work as much. But that is not obviously bad. Indeed, that's probably good. So basically, I think the important way to think about work, the way an economist thinks about work, is not that everyone should work. Basically, everyone should work when their value of what they produce is more than their unhappiness of being at work. So basically, you know, we don't think 90-year-olds should work, right, necessarily. But why is that? It's not that 90-year-olds aren't productive. We just think that their unhappiness of being at work would exceed the benefit they'd produce by being at work. So basically, there's a lot of people who are sort of working who, quite frankly, would, we'd be better off if they didn't work. But they work because they have to. They, need it, they do it for the health insurance. So, for example, there's a large literature which shows many people retire once they can get health insurance and they're happier for it. So I think that basically what the literature, what the studies have found is that overall there's not been a big change in aggregate employment as a result of the ACA. There's not been this huge problem of you know, the labor market collapsing. But there has been some reduction in labor supply, probably because there are workers who, quite frankly, didn't want to be working, were working only for the health insurance, and now they get to be home instead, and that makes them happier. Coming back to the idea that there was this big increase in coverage, we saw that that increased coverage led to better mental health, better health outcomes, more financial stability. And it also didn't lead to people's inability to get care. So was there any change in the quality of care? Or how would we think about that? I don't know. There hasn't really been a lot of good examination on sort of, certainly there's no evidence it's lowering the quality of care insured people are getting. I think that was a concern. Insured people might have to wait longer or get lower quality care. There's no evidence of that. What I don't know is sort of what's the evidence on the quality of care the uninsured are getting relative to what you know people are getting before. I don't really know the answer to that. All I know is their health's better, and that's in some sense what matters. And so it sounds like that might be an area for future work. And are there other continuing inquiries and other issues that are you think that are important for people to address? Yeah, I think there is. I think you know, you've hit the nail on the head with thinking about the quality aspects. And I think trying to understand, I think a really important issue that we talk about a bit in the paper is trying to understand, it comes back to where you started, which is trying to break apart a bit the elements of this law and understanding as you change different elements, because this law is always going to evolve, what is that going to do? You know, we're getting sort of the overall effect of the law, but can we get a sense of kind of how different elements of the law, change different elements of the law might affect outcomes? I think that's a really important area for future work. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Well, this has been a really interesting, wide-ranging discussion. I've learned a lot, uh, for sure. I hope our listeners have learned as well. And I think it's a necessarily wide-ranging, complex discussion, given the complexity and ambition of the ACA and healthcare and so on. So I'll leave it with this last question, and that is, how can and should and will we learn from the research that you review in this study when we come to future healthcare policy in the U.S.? Well, I think one great thing this study can do is, you mentioned, is sort of talk about all the methodological innovations in studying health insurance reforms, how to use a law change like the ACA to really learn 
fundamental truths about how health insurance markets operate. I think that's a big lesson here. And so I think it just provides sort of a roadmap for how you can analyze uh, future health law, health law changes. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for your time, Professor Gruber, and thank you for writing this important article. It was a pleasure having you on JPAM's Closer Look podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.